Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the study of antiquity and the Middle Ages. As always, I am your host, Nick Barksdale, and today we're joined by a very special guest, and that is none other than Anya Leonard from Classical Wisdom. Anya, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And for our audience today who may not know who you are or be familiar with your work, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Uh, well, I am the founder and director of Classical Wisdom. We are a site dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Uh, we've been around since around 2013. And um, to be honest, it was initially founded, co-founded with Bill Bonner, who owns uh, Agora Inc. Uh, and he also happens to own Le Belette, the French publishing house. Uh, which is one of the last publishing houses to do critical translations of still untranslated ancient texts. A lot of the other publishing houses found out there wasn't really much money in it. Um, so have discontinued this still important task because there are thousands and thousands of documents that still have not been critically translated from antiquity. Uh, and who knows what's in them, you know? And that that's something that I think is really exciting. So Classical Wisdom was actually initially founded with the project of finding ways to have classics-based uh, programs be self-sustainable. Um, and that's still sort of our, our mission because you don't, you don't want to have to rely on, on grants and endowments. And so um, our goal is to provide engaging, accessible, and interesting uh, resources about the classical world and show people that ancient history is valuable and relevant to our modern lives and that, you know, we can genuinely be interesting, interested, have your greater perspective people by studying what has come before us. So I think it's a really valuable thing. And um, basically, my goal is to basically show people that the classics are still cool. And to my audience today, before we dive into this, I want to encourage you check out the links in the video description below. It's going to take you to Classical Wisdom, all of their outlets, and truly take advantage of everything that they have to offer to help people like me and you better understand the history that we all love. And if possible, I highly encourage you to become a member of Classical Wisdom. I am myself, and I really can't recommend it enough, and we'll get into it in a minute as to why some of the advantages being free eBooks, but more importantly, what you all love, and that is webinars, where some of the greatest historians and archaeologists take us into history itself. Now, I want to talk about classical wisdom itself. What led you and your co-founder to create this organization? Well, I guess as I, I just mentioned, the idea of having classics be self-sustainable um, and to show people that it's it's really valuable now. Um, it's it's interesting because Bill Bonner, my co-founder, he actually writes about finance and economics, um, and he happens to be a classics lover. And I think it's really valuable to show people that classics and ancient history and philosophy and literature is sometimes about developing a way to think. And it, it can be extremely valuable. And he's been an extremely successful businessman, an extremely invest, a successful investor. And he also is extremely passionate about the classics. And I don't think those things are actually unrelated. Uh, so that's another example of just how valuable it can be for, for 
showing one's outlook in life, even from a financial standpoint. And for our audience today who may check out Classical Wisdom, they're interested in becoming a member. Would you tell us a little bit about what Classical Wisdom has to offer them when it comes to a membership? Uh, Sure. And thanks for asking. There's lots of perks. Um, First off is just access to all of our resources. Um, And we are constantly adding to that. So we put out a new ebook almost every other month um, that has original text, commentaries, introductions that sort of help you lead through. So one of our most recent ones was on Roman comedy and it it kind of collected a lot of the Roman comics, but it also sort of went through the stock characters, the essential plots, really helped flesh out for somebody who's new to Roman comedy, um, the kind of information that will let them actually enjoy the experience of reading the text. So we have a very large and growing ebook library. Um, We also have an audio library filled with podcasts with professors. Um, It actually started out about seven years ago, I think. We were doing, oh no, actually more recently, four or five four years ago, we were doing around the world trip, actually. And as we went, I would find professors locally and be like, hey, I'm in town. Do you mind if I interview you? You know, so we started off with my alma mater, um, Edinburgh, University of Edinburgh. Uh, and then we went down to Cyprus and we sort of traveled around the world. And so I got to start interviewing all these professors in person. Uh, and it, it went over so well with our members that I just kept doing it. And I've been interviewing professors you know, I've been getting wonderful, wonderful interviews. And I've been really grateful for the just intellectual powerhouses that are willing to talk to me, to be frank. Um, And we have subsequently taken some of those podcasts and newer ones and created also Classical Wisdom Speaks, which is a free podcast as well, if you want to get a a sampling. But with regards to our memberships, we also have a really cool magazine that comes out every month called Classical Wisdom Literae, and that covers all sorts of interesting themes each month. So last month's was Mycenae, uh, but we've done ones on, you know, Alexander the Great and Hellenism and the rise of Hellenism, or a new one coming up recently will be Stoicism. You know, so we, we cover different topics from the entire ancient world. We did one just on the ancient Jewish people. So uh, a full range uh, of topics. So, and, and we also are working very hard to kind of build out our community as well, because I think for us who love classics, we are spread throughout the world. And it's nice to know that we all exist um, and that we can talk to each other and, and find inspiration with each other. So I really like the idea of fostering a community for that. And that that's part of what we're trying to do with our memberships as well. And now I want to talk about my favorite part of classical wisdom. Anyone who knows me, who knows my channel, knows that I love to do lectures, post lectures from archaeologists and historians from around the world, talks by them, so on and so forth. And I love websites that do the exact same thing. And so now I want to talk about webinars. And this episode is almost like a promotional trailer to not only promote classical wisdom, but to also promote what they've got coming. And so I'd like to talk about your upcoming webinar that people can actually attend online. And would you mind telling us a little bit about what it is and what will it be about? So this year we're having our second ever symposium. It's taking place August 21st and 22nd. And to be frank, our lineup is 
just awesome. I'm really, really excited about it. So we actually, you know, asked our community what subjects they would find interesting and what they wanted us to sort of delve into and have like a deep dive. Um, and I think the idea is there are a lot of issues happening in the world. And I think the perspective of people who spend our time studying ancient history and philosophy have really valuable contributions on modern topics. And so part of my goal for classical wisdom, as I said before, is showing the relevance of the ancient world. So we asked people what they wanted. And the title we've come up with is The End of Empires and the Fall of Nations. So we're going to discuss um, how empires evolve and move. And, you know, people love making a comparison to modern empires, to the Roman Empire, or the British Empire. You know, this is a very common trait. But people don't really discuss exactly how the Roman Empire fa failed or, or found its demise. Similarly, you know, with the Greek Empire, that, that making those comparisons, we really need to understand the history properly. Um, and so we actually have some more modern and ancient uh, historians. Uh, one of our headline speakers is Neil Ferguson, um, who's, you know, one of the most celebrated historians alive today. Um, we have a whole slew of fantastic speakers like Paul Cartledge, Edith Hall, um, who are all absolute specialists. We've also got great philosophers um, like Angie Hobbs, and we've got a lot of the Stoics present. Uh, we've got A.A. A. Long, Donald Robertson, William B. Irving. Um, we've got Victor Davis Hanson. You know, we, we also try to have uh, philosophers and historians from the full spectrum of backgrounds. And I think that's really valuable because if everybody's coming from the same angle, you're not going to learn a lot. So what you want to do is approach difficult subjects like a skeptic and have an open mind, um, be willing to hear different opinions, because if you can't listen to a different opinion, you're not going to learn anything. Uh, and even listening to opinion you don't agree with is going to strengthen your own if so inclined. But if you never question your own opinions, you can't really judge them and you can't really value them. So I think that's part of the, the mission as well as having kind of a whole spectrum of, of different classicists, historians, philosophers. Um, and we're also trying to make it making sure that it's fun as well. So, I mean, what is a symposium without wine? You know, simply a meeting. Uh, so we've actually partnered with Bonner Private Wines. Uh, it's a very exclusive wine club, and they've actually sourced exclusively for our symposium, a special Mediterranean collection. So if anybody wants to get into the spirit of an ancient symposium, we are trying to recreate that the best we can with some modern technology and ancient vineyards. Uh, so that that offer is only open until August 10th. So there's not much time for that. Um, but even if people miss the wine club offer. Uh, our sommelier will have uh, recommended suggestions that can be paired throughout the event as well. So um, the, the idea is we'll have like a full day of presentations that kind of cover a whole range of topics and different empires and different angles. And then we'll have a wine tasting and then a panel discussion at the end. So that's sort of the, the structure of the event. One of our goals about classical wisdom is to make it as accessible as possible. And it's something that I love. We have a truly international audience. We have a truly international speakers. Um, and we are trying to reach people from all over the world. Uh, as such, uh, we are actually 
just offering the tickets under the donation basis. So if you can't afford it at all, you can actually email us and we will help you out. Um, and you can even just put in your own donation amount as low as $1 or as, as high as you wish to help out. Um, so just to let everybody know, um, we are really trying to make sure that everybody can get access to this sort of level of knowledge and information. This isn't something just for, you know, exclusively for one group of people or another. This is for everybody. I think everyone should enjoy lessons from the ancient world. And to my audience today, definitely check out the links in the video description below if you're interested in attending this symposium. I can't recommend it enough. I'm pretty excited about it myself. As she stated, they have a huge list of awesome experts that will be there to really guide us through what we all love the most. And that is the history of the rise and fall of empires. And with that being said, we wanted to actually show you an example of what classical wisdom has to offer when it comes to their members and what they can learn from their webinars. And so thanks to classical wisdom, right after this, we're going to take you into the heart of a talk so you can experience it all firsthand. And I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And now as we approach the main piece of this episode, a talk that you are all going to truly enjoy I have to ask a question that leads up to that, and that is ancient history, Stoicism, and today. Anya, could you lead us into that topic? Yes, thank you. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because Stoicism, like only about 50 years ago, was kind of considered passe and a bit niche and uh and uh, it, it was it's enjoyed a very recent revival. Um, but part of that reason is that it's actually so applicable to us today. So a lot of the tenets of Stoicism, um, they have found actually correlate very clearly with testifiably verifiable techniques for cognitive behavior therapy and ways for handling modern day issues like depression, anxiety, anger, because the reality is those aren't actually modern day issues and people have been dealing with them for thousands of years. So um, I've got one of my presenters at the symposium and a good friend of mine, Donald Robertson. Uh, he is a cognitive behavior therapist, as well as one of the founders for modern stoicism. And he does a great job uh, illustrating some of the ancient stoic principles and how they can be used today in really, really applicable ways um, that can help build emotional resilience and give one perspective and really help people find control in their lives in the right kind of way. Um, and, and it's really tactics that are used for addiction, um, all sorts of issues uh, that are really attainable ways to fix and help individuals, just about any individual, to be honest. Uh, and so it's great because he ties it a lot in with the life of Marcus Aurelius, which is the former Roman emperor and a Stoic as well. And if anyone follows the life of Marcus Aurelius, he too had to deal with plague. He had to deal with anger. He had to deal with frustration and illness. Um, so his words really resonate with us today. And it's it's really fantastic to learn how those ancient philosophies can help us now. Hi, everyone. Um, this is Anya Leonard, the co-founder of Classical Wisdom, and um, very happy to welcome you to today's webinar. Uh, we have uh, Donald Robertson speaking to us about Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism and cognitive behavior therapy and, and how this is sort of practical to us today. 
without further ado, thank you, Donald. Thanks very much, Anya, and hi, everyone out there. So without further ado, my name is Donald Robertson. Uh, the organization I work for is called Modern Stoicism. So I should explain a little bit more for you about what Stoicism is, because I assume that some of you probably know a lot about Stoicism. Maybe some of you know more about it than me. And I, but most people I end up speaking to are kind of newcomers to it, are relatively new to the subject. So I'll need to do a little bit of an intro, I guess. Um, so Stoicism is a Greek philosophy that originated in 300 BC. And the founder of Stoicism was a guy called Zeno of Citium, and he was a Phoenician merchant. And there's lots of beautiful stories, really, uh, kind of almost like allegories about the, the origins of Stoicism. And one of them is that Zeno, like uh, most Phoenicians, was uh, trading uh, imperial purple, um, this very precious dye that was made from the Murex uh, uh, sea snail. Uh, so it was very difficult. It took a long time to extract this dye, made this precious purple, and his ship sank in a storm. And he lost all of his dye. So ironically, it went back to the sea, the, the place that he spent like years kind of harvesting this and building his fortune. It all just dissolved back into the water. And he was washed ashore at the port of Piraeus near Athens. And then he kind of dragged himself to Athens and was living like a beggar. And basically, he was inspired to become a philosopher after having lost his fortune. And he ended up saying, the most prosperous journey that I ever made was the one in which I lost my entire fortune, because that that's what led him to reappraise his values in life and to think in a radically different way about what, what direction he was heading in and what the meaning of life was. And he decided to become a philosopher. And actually, he went to the Oracle at Delphi, not far from here. I've been to Delphi recently. And the, the Pythia, the Oracle, said to him that he was to take on the color of dead men, which is a really kind of cryptic thing to say. So he was kind of confused by that. Um, but he realized eventually that what she meant was that he was to dye his mind with the wisdom of deceased philosophers from previous generations. The main one probably being Socrates, because the Stoics are big fans of Socrates and even kind of supposedly dubbed themselves a, a Socratic sect as sort of disciples or followers in the Socratic tradition. So rather than dyeing his clothes with the, the color of dead sea snails, he was to color his mind, dye his mind deeply uh, with the virtues and the wisdom of ancient philosophers. And uh, he was at a bookseller's in Athens and he stumbled across Xenophon's Memorabilia Socrates, and he was reading the, the second book of it, which contains a very famous speech, which is now known as the Choice of Hercules, which actually originally came from a sophist called Prodicus, and Socrates used to tell it to people. And in the book, we have this like, third-hand account of it by Xenophon repeating Socrates' account of Prodicus's speech, but it's a protractic, it's an exhortation to philosophy. It's meant to inspire people to become philosophers or to embrace a life of virtue and wisdom anyway. And so Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, having lost all his wealth, heard the speech or read the speech, and he jumped up and said to the bookseller, where can I find a man like this that's alive today? And the bookseller pointed uh, he was asking about where can I find a guy like Socrates, like what, like this dead philosopher. And by chance, the cynic Crates of Thebes was walking past, and the bookseller said, "Follow yonder man." And so he did, and he became a cynic philosopher for about a decade or whatever. And he studied other schools of philosophy in Athens, and then he founded the Stoic school. And the Stoics taught that virtue is the only true good, and for them, like Socrates, virtue is an intellectual state. It's kind of like 
a form of moral wisdom, basically. So Stoics adopt this moral hard line where they say the only thing that really matters in life is that you're a good person and that you try to do good, moral and wise things. And because we can't always succeed in life and what we're trying to do, then you, you have to view external events with a certain amount of, of emotional detachment and not get too hung up on them. So you should try and achieve um, good in the world, but that shouldn't be your main goal. It's the intention, it's the thought that counts, if you like. It's the intention that matters more than anything else. And sometimes we have to learn to accept that we're thwarted by circumstances. That's really the essence of Stoicism. So I guess I should say, um, or the other thing I should say about the Stoics is that a lot of people think they were unemotional, and that's not really true. The Stoics had a place for positive, healthy emotions. In particular, they're very interested in the emotion of love, brotherly love, and uh, what they call cosmopolitanism. And uh, Stoicism was known for this kind of view of equ equality and viewing all, all humans as being, in a sense, equal. It's a forerunner of Christianity, obviously, in that, in that respect, in terms of its ethics. And the other thing I should say, which I'll come back to, my reason for being interested in Stoicism originally is a cognitive therapy, and part of the reason it's going through a resurgence in popularity is that Stoicism was the original philosophical inspiration in the 1950s for modern cognitive behavioral psychotherapy. And that's because the idea they inherited from Socrates that our emotions are fundamentally determined by our underlying beliefs. And we call that today the cognitive theory of emotion, and it's the basis of a form of psychotherapy that's been hugely successful and is now the dominant form of modern evidence-based psychological therapy. So the Stoics are going through a resurgence in popularity partly because this evidence lends kind of indirect support to this age-old kind of Socratic psychological principle. Um, so I should say a lot about, about my book. And uh, I just wanted to really say why I wrote it and stuff. Like I'd written a, a couple of books about Stoicism before, in particular I'd written a kind of basic introduction to the subject and I was kind of invited to write another introduction to Stoicism and I thought well I can't because I've already written one, it's called Stoicism and the Art of Happiness, it's a teach yourself book. And loads of other people had written really good introductions to Stoicism, like my friend uh, Massimo Pellucci has written a book called How to Be a Stoic and Ryan Holiday uh, has uh, written The Obstacle is the Way and The Daily Stoic with Steve Hanselman and uh, Chuck Chakrapani's Unshakable Free. There's an endless list of really good modern books about Stoicism anyway. So I thought, well, how am I going to write another book about Stoicism? And I thought I need to approach it in a radically different way that achieves the same goal. So how, how am I going to square the circle and do the impossible? And funnily enough, at that time, I, I have a young daughter who was uh, about four or five at that time. And I, I used to tell her stories about Greek mythology. So she'd go to school and the other kids would say their favorite superheroes were Batman and Spider-Man or whatever. And she'd say that her favorite superhero was Hercules, like, which I guess confused the other kids a bit. So eventually I ran out of stories about Greek mythology and I started to tell her anecdotes about Greek philosophers. And I realized that I knew loads of these anecdotes, like the one about Zeno that I just told you. And everyone knows the anecdote also about Diogenes the Cynic when he allegedly met Alexander the Great. And Alexander, the most powerful man in the world, said, is there anything I can do for you or anything I can give you? And Diogenes says, yes, can you step aside? You're blocking the sun. And so these sort of anecdotes I used to talk to Poppy about, my daughter. And uh, I thought, hang on a minute, can I write a book that's a bit like that? Could I write a book about Stoicism that consists in anecdotes like the one about Zeno? And then I thought there's a problem there because we don't have that many anecdotes about Zeno. We don't know that much about him. Um, but there is another Stoic that we know loads about, and that's Marcus Aurelius. And we know loads about him because he was a Roman emperor. He's kind of the last 
famous Stoic actually, about five centuries after Xenosis. Stoics goes around for like 500 years and it's, you know, uh, in its heyday anyway. And uh, we know a lot about Marcus because there are like several uh, Roman histories that describe his reign and his character, in addition to having also the meditations, his private record of his Stoic exercises. And also we have his private correspondence with his rhetoric tutor, uh, Marcus Cornelius Fronto. So we've got all this evidence about Marcus, you know, and obviously there's a bunch of statues of him and things like that and other bits of archeological and humanistic evidence. So we, we can tell more stories about him. So I wrote a book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, the Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius, where each chapter tells a story based on the Roman history, so factually based. And then I kind of segue into his philosophy and how that relates to his behavior and these historical uh, anecdotes. And then I kind of segue from that into modern cognitive therapy and what that tells us about how we would apply similar techniques today, basically. So I thought we've got roughly 10 minutes left and then we'll do some Q&A. Um, I'd like to say a little bit about some practical stoic exercises. So I know for some of you, that's kind of like the main thing. And um, yeah, I, I'm a I was a, I am a techniques guy. I was always a techniques guy as a psychotherapist. It was kind of what I was known for. Two things, number one, being quite argumentative and number two, being really into like lots of different techniques. So when I ran training courses, I would teach therapists lots of practical skills and practical exercises. And I'd carefully evaluate them and stuff, gather a lot of data on them. And when I, I discovered the Stoics, uh, like about 20 years ago now, I immediately started to kind of classify and categorize the different techniques I could find. And the first book I wrote on the sub subject, The Philosophy of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, um, I drew up a list of all the parallels between stoicism and modern cognitive therapy, particularly the rational emotive behavior therapy of a guy called Albert Ellis, one of the pioneers of modern cognitive therapy. And um, I went back recently and looked at that list because I don't think I actually numbered it, but there were about 18 distinct psychological practices that I identified in stoicism, kind of depending on how you choose to carve things up. So the there are two that, in a sense, are particularly fundamental um, and well-known. So we may as well start with those. So the, uh, the first one is the opening sentence of a thing called the Enchiridion, or the Handbook of Epictetus. So we actually have this little concise handbook of how to be a Stoic. Um, so Massimo wasn't the first person to write a book, How to Be a Stoic. We have we kind of have the ancient equivalent from Epictetus, the, the, the most famous teacher of philosophy in the, in the Roman Empire, arguably, certainly the most famous Stoic teacher. And uh, the, the opening sentence of it says, some things are up to us and other things are not. So particularly in the Greek, it's a very simple construction. And this is the foundation of everything that follows in that handbook. In a sense, it's the, in a sense, it's the foundation of uh, stoicism, particularly in, in the way that Epictetus conceptualizes it. Some things are up to us and other things are not. And he means some things are entirely up to us. Some things are directly up to us. And he goes on to clarify in the next sentence. He's not kind of making a distinction between how much control we have of varying degrees over things. No, he's making a much more absolute fundamental distinction between our acts of volition, uh, our acts of will themselves, and everything else. So he says it's our own voluntary thoughts and actions that are up to us. And we need to make a clear distinction, the Stoics say, 
They think we normally blur this boundary, and I agree from the perspective of modern therapy. The clients do this all the time. And the Stoics thought that by becoming much clearer about this, uh, what modern Stoics call the dichotomy of control, that we cope more, uh, we cope better with stressful situations. So they think that we should take greater responsibility for the things that are actually under our voluntary control and learn to be more emotionally indifferent or accepting uh, towards external events that aren't under our direct control. But that does not mean that we should be completely indifferent to them. The Stoics believe that we should have a pref preference for one sort of external outcome over another. It's rational to prefer healthy outcomes, but we shouldn't get upset when they, these things don't go our own way. We should invest uh, our more importance on the intentions because that's what's directly under our control and our own character goes hand in hand with that. And some of you may realize that in the modern world, this dichotomy of control is found in a very well-known saying or prayer called the Serenity Prayer, which was made famous by Alcoholics Anonymous and even celebrities have it tattooed on them and things like that. So it says, God, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And that happens to almost perfectly encapsulate the core psychological principle of Epictetus's Stoicism. I mean, the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's kind of stoicism in a nutshell. And uh, but stoicism is a much bigger, more complex philosophy. That's just one of its foundation stones. So the other fundamental principle um, comes a couple of sentences later in the Handbook of Epictetus, where he says very famously, this is probably the most famous quote from stoicism, um, it's not things that upset us, but our opinions or our judgments about them. And that became particularly famous because the founders of cognitive psychotherapy used to quote that to their clients. They still do sometimes. And cognitive therapists still do sometimes. So Ellis in particular used to teach his clients that quote from Epictetus in the initial consultation, what we sometimes call the socialization phase of therapy, or you could say the orientation phase of psychotherapy, when the client is learning about their role and their responsibilities and how to participate effectively in therapy. So we taught them this principle, that it's our judgments that upset us rather than events themselves. And particularly the Stoics believed our value judgments, making strong positive or negative value judgments about external events was the main thing that caused distress, particularly when things didn't go according to our, our wishes or desires. And so they believe that we should become, again, just more aware of the fact that we're doing that. And nowadays, when people do that, psychologically, we describe it as cognitive distancing. So that's a kind of jargon term that we tend to use for that in, in cognitive therapy. And that's making a, a distance or a separation between certain beliefs that we have and the external events that they refer to. That's the distance that we're talking about. Marcus Aurelius calls that separating his thoughts from external events and not fusing or blending them together. So rather than saying that this is a catastrophic situation, therapists would encourage clients to say that they're catastrophizing the situation by choosing to view it in a negative light and that's something that they're projecting onto it. The way we normally explain that to clients is to say, you've all heard about looking at the world through rose-tinted glasses while doing my classes like that. <laughs> These are my rose-tinted glasses. And so you can imagine that someone who's depressed is viewing the world through kind of dark glasses or blue glasses, so they have blue feelings, sad feelings. And cognitive distancing is when you realize that the blueness is coming from the glasses that you're wearing rather than being a feature 
of the the world itself, like that there are you know that our experience of things um, comes from our certain opinions or our values that we project onto them. So a couple of other Stoic techniques I want to mention just to kind of wrap up. Uh, the Stoics thought it was very important to model, as we call it today, the behaviour or the positive qualities or virtues of, of people that we admire. And book one of Marcus Aurelius' Meditations is entirely dedicated to that. Uh, 16 different people he looks at and lists all of the things that he admires about them. The Stoics would call them their virtues. And so he's trying to encapsulate those in words so that he can learn to emulate that. And that's a very powerful and very important psychological practice that the Stoics put a lot of emphasis on. And another thing they do is a technique called the view from above that involves trying to contemplate the whole universe and picturing current events within this bigger context of space and time. And sometimes that could be like the view of the Olympian gods looking down from high above, or incidentally, like sometimes sounds like they're almost describing the view from the Acropolis looking down in the Agora below in Athens, which is something that Socrates and other Athenians would have been very familiar with. But sometimes it's more of a metaphysical, a cosmological vision. They try and imagine the whole of space and time as if from the perspective of God himself. And so the, the things that are troubling us then seem, although we're not denying them or ignoring them, they're still there, but they're in such a vast context, they seem more trivial. And the Stoics would say that that's a more truthful perspective because these events really actually do take place within a wider context. And, and realising that uh, is not only more philosophically truthful, it also makes them less disturbing to us. Another big thing that the Stoics used to do is to contemplate their own death, again an idea that they kind of inherited from Socrates and his followers, and so this is a recurring theme particularly in Marcus Aurelius, that by contemplating our own mortality it helps us to value the present moment more and to, to cherish life as an opportunity and to, to remain more grounded in the here and now or the present moment. There are many overlaps between Stoicism and Buddhism in this respect, in terms of mindfulness and, and uh, dwelling in the present moment. And the other famous Stoic technique, which I'll finish with, is called Premeditatio Malorum. And uh, the premeditation of adversity or bad things or evils, however you want to describe it, I like to say the premeditation of adversity. So Stoics would regularly imagine other bad things, not just their own death, but illness, poverty, exile, and so on. Seneca in particular talks a lot about this. Marcus Aurelius touches on it a little bit. And so every day the Stoics would practice, imagine the sort of things that people might worry about, but they picture them as if they're currently happening. And that's partly just because the Stoics realized that when we do that for long enough in a controlled manner, that our emotional distress tends to wear off. And that's one of the most robustly established findings in modern research on psychotherapy, incidentally. It's called emotional habituation. So if we do it in the right way for long enough and repeatedly, anxiety in particular will tend to wear off through repeated mental exposure, what we call marginal exposure. And the Stoics knew that 2,000 years ago. And uh, the other thing that they're doing is rehearsing different ways of thinking about adversity. So they picture cat catastrophes in their mind in order to rehearse viewing them with greater indifference and realizing that what really matters is how they respond to the event rather than the event itself. So that's a kind of little lightning tour of Stoicism. Hopefully it's not too much information, but I wanted to kind of give you a little bit of background, a little bit of history, and then some of the kind of practical exercises that you can begin maybe thinking about using in your own life and, and be reading up a little bit more on if you, you think they might be helpful. And hopefully you can also kind of see now like why Stoicism would be of such interest to modern psychologists and cognitive psychotherapists.
Um, Dear Donald, what are the advantages of the Stoic philosophy when compared with the Epicurean philosophy, which is apparently more optimistic? Oh, this is going to be a good one because I know Anya said earlier that she was a little bit more tempted by the Epicurean side. So we're going to see if we can kind of win her over to the Stoics. This is something that Seneca did, by the way. In Seneca's letter, the first 20 or so, he talks about Epicureanism and it he, in a very subtle rhetorical way, interestingly, he, he tries to sneakily win over Epicureans to the side of Stoicism. And he does it by starting off complimenting the Epicureans. I'm going to skip that set, step and get right into criticizing Epicureanism. So Epicureanism is this philosophy that was developed by Epicurus around about the same time as the, the Stoic school originated. And it, it's sometimes described as a form of hedonism, although I know modern Epicureans often don't like that. Um, because it shouldn't be confused with sort of naive or crude hedonism. Really, Epicurus said the goal of life was pleasure, hedone, but he he said that he meant something paradoxical by that. He said that the, the healthiest form of, of pleasure, the highest form of pleasure, was actually freedom from suffering or pain, which the Epicureans called ataraxia. So kind of peace of mind. And so Epicureanism in some ways kind of almost resembled Buddhism. Um, again, like Stoicism, it's a kind of partly a psychological practice, but there's a problem with it from the point of view of modern psychotherapy, and I'll cut straight to the chase, it's this, that when people place too much importance on uh, avoiding certain subjective feelings or uh, acquiring certain subjective feelings, like avoiding pain and experiencing more pleasure, it's believed now that that can potentially be quite counterproductive in a number of different ways. So we, particularly funnily enough, ataraxia, the avoidance, the avoidance of suffering, there's research that shows that people who believe that the unpleasant feeling of anxiety is bad, who strongly believe that anxiety is a, is a bad thing, are, tend to be more vulnerable to developing anxiety and depression in the long term. And the Stoics see happiness and pleasant feelings in that sense, feelings of happiness, as being a kind of byproduct or a side effect of acquiring wisdom and virtue. And so they think that like, if we try to take a shortcut and chase after these things too directly, sometimes that can actually be counterproductive or unhealthy. So we should try to develop we should try to develop wisdom and strength of character and then view feelings of happiness as, as something that, that follows on naturally from that. But we shouldn't make those feelings the, the primary goal. Um, partly because that can make us much too focused introspectively on what's going on inside us rather than on the outside world. Um, but partly because if actually if we think that suffering or painful feelings are bad, that traps us psychologically in many cases and when you might be able to find ways around this. But generally people who think like that tend to become preoccupied with those unpleasant feelings to allocate more attention to them. And they even kind of do that unconsciously. So that can be very counterproductive. They can become preoccupied with their anxieties, which exacerbates them, you know, and, and makes them worse. So hopefully that, that helps a lot. But there's a lot more that we could say about Epicureanism. And I should say from the perspective of the modern world, these different philosophies often seem like they have an awful lot in common. And so some people think they amount to the same thing, but, but really um, in the ancient world, they were seen as fundamentally opposing um, views about the meaning of life or the goal of life, if you, if you prefer that way of putting it. Well, that's um, very, very interesting. And thank you again, Donald, for, for talking to us. Um, if you want to show everyone your, your book one more time, I can also, uh, Put a link in if anyone's interested in buying it in the follow-up email. 
And um, yes, thank you again. Um, uh, it's a great way to start the Saturday with a bit of stoicism. A bit of stoicism for breakfast or brunch or whatever, whatever time it is there. Exactly. Yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed that. And thanks for tuning in.